Hi there. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Patient Zero. If you like what we're up to over here at New Hampshire Public Radio, consider making a donation. $20 will get you access to a members-only podcast feed. It will have bonus episodes and exclusive early access to each episode that we make. To donate, head to patientzeropodcast.org or click the link in the show notes. Okay, enjoy. Previously on Patient Zero. One of us said, yeah, we're the wellies. David and I were, you know, escaping most of it. And they were the sickies. Severe muscle aches, a swollen knee, fever, and crushing, throbbing headaches. Todd saw Dr. Espenson, who concluded that Todd had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Did that diagnosis mean anything to you at that point? Well, I think I didn't actually believe the diagnosis. The first time it was swelling of the knees, the size of soccer balls. And then I went into the study, spread out my notes before me on the desk, and dialed the number. There were two notes on the desk, essentially asking about whether arthritis could be infectious. So I'm going to leave the bait in here, and I'm just going to close this trap. And they just, so it's it's a like a metal box, and one side has a door on a hinge, so they they go in, and then the door kind of snaps shut, yep. and then There's they're inside the little box. Right in the back, and once they step on that treadle, it triggers the front door to close. Gotcha. I'm used to seeing squirrels and chipmunks in the forest. But right now, I'm standing on the grounds of the Cary Institute for Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, New York, And senior research specialist Kelly Ogenfuss is showing me the invisible inhabitants that I never see. All right. Now take a look. Oh, hi, little buddy. Buddies. Oh, (laughs) gosh. Oh, yeah. There's two in there. Oh, Oh, they're cute. Yeah. There are two adorable gray cotton balls cuddling at the bottom of the trap that Kelly is holding. So those two mice were the species Paramiscus leucopus, and that's the white-footed mouse. That's the mouse that's, that's everywhere. They're probably siblings, she explains. They'll forage together, and they'll get caught together. And in this study area, about the size of five football fields put together, they might have hundreds of cousins doing the same. So what I'm doing here is emptying out the old bait. There are hundreds of traps, too, set up in a grid, each one just a few meters from the next. Some mice will get caught so often, the researchers call them trap-happy and that means they'll go into traps over and over and over again. You can tell by the tags on their ears if they've already been examined before. But tags are not the only thing you will find on their ears. Right here. Can you see a little dot right at the tip of my tweezers? Oh my god, that is so small. Yeah, that's the larval tick. Um, Some of the clustering is going on here, where you have bunches of ticks right in the corner of the ear and right here by the tag. For decades, scientists at the Cary Institute have been studying the relationship between ticks, white-footed mice, and Lyme disease, as well as deer, shrews, possums, squirrels, acorns, and more. They're also testing different tick-killing chemicals to see if we can stop Lyme disease at the border of our backyards instead of at our doctor's offices. We'll get into some of what I learned here in a future episode. For now, I just want you to focus on the method, the process. I have a squirrel at I. Would you like to see a squirrel? (laughs) (laughs) They have plenty of mics, so you're not going to miss this. Okay, all right. 
The day started with a bouncy drive into the woods, where we started checking traps and collecting mice. For me, a guy who was used to working most days in an office, this was a grand day out. Total adventure. One highlight was the squirrel trap. The team is focused on capturing mice, but they count ticks on squirrels as well. Cornered squirrels are insane, by the way. But for Kelly and her team, it's just another day on the job. All right, um, H1 Hakuna Matata. And once they collect um, the mice, well then, the real work begins. It's 23 ticks on the right ear here. It is an adult female, vagina one, nipples one. They have to take samples of tissue, blood, urine, feces, and count all of the ticks on every mouse they catch. One larva on the right ear. And the day I joined them, they had caught nearly 50 of them. And one Once again, I have no feces, so. This is what science looks like. Sitting in white coveralls at a plastic poker table in the middle of the woods, counting ticks all day, every day. If this is the soundtrack to epidemiology that you hear in your head, a clue. Science. Eureka! Then this is the actual pace of epidemiological progress. You're marveling at the pee so right now. There's so, so much pee. <laughs> so, this might be half a mil. <laughs> Easy to forget when you're the one waiting for answers. Back in 1975, Polly Murray had been to doctor after doctor, trying to figure out what was happening to the children of Lyme, Connecticut. Here's her daughter, Wendy. Hindsight is 2020, but like, oh my gosh, you think about all the kids coming in with swollen, painful knees, and you know, why weren't they connecting the dots? You know, it's why did it take the moms to uh, to put put all those pieces together? Why did it take so long to figure out Lyme disease? One reason is that science is, by definition, slow. It's easy in 2019 to look back and say, well, duh, Lyme is spread by ticks, that it's treated with antibiotics. But back in 1975, when researchers were first investigating the disease, they had to rule out all the possibilities. They had to check water supplies, investigate local schools, collect and test mosquitoes, count ticks. One by one. In the last episode, we learned that it took scientists about six months to identify the cause of Legionnaire's disease. For the mystery that began in Lyme, Connecticut in 1975, it would take them about seven years. I'm Taylor Quimby. We've heard the story of Polly Murray, one of the moms who started putting the Lyme disease pieces together. In this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of the scientists who finished the puzzle, who subjected the mystery to a rigorous epidemiological investigation. What you'll hear is a process that sometimes puts patients and scientists at odds, a process that is slow and cautious and not always very satisfying. This is a story that foreshadows controversies to come, the fight to define Lyme disease, a battle that is still being waged today. They arch their backs like cats. Yeah. This is not an adventure. Good squirrel. This is not a grand day out. This is Patient Zero. 
TikTok season. Yeah, it's a beautiful area, actually. Yeah, it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, right along the Connecticut River there. It's really actually like, quite, quite beautiful. November 1975. Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer Dr. David Snydman had been working with the Connecticut State Health Department for just a few months when he was handed a bizarre mystery. Two mothers, unbeknownst to one another, each reporting cases of juvenile arthritis in and around Lyme, Connecticut. Well, so my first step was to, to return the calls to the, to the mothers that had called and, and try and get some information, basically, where they lived and whether they knew other cases. One of those mothers was Polly Murray, who we learned about in the last episode. And the other was a woman named Judith Mensch, Her fourth grader, Anne, had a massive swollen knee and was hobbling around on crutches. At first, she had been diagnosed with osteomyelitis, a type of bone infection. But eventually, they changed it to JRA, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, an autoimmune disease. On the phone with David Snydman, each of them, Polly and Judith, was able to point to other kids with JRA living in the same area. I initially did a map of the area, which I actually have hanging on my wall with different color-coded dots about what month or year they might have been diagnosed or had the onset of the arthritis. Maps are an important tool in the epidemiologist's toolbox. Because an epidemic is only an epidemic if the number of cases are above average. So, if you plot patients on a map and discover their numbers exceed what is statistically expected in a given area, then you've got what epidemiologists call a cluster, which may be the beginnings of an epidemic. And given that JRA isn't supposed to be contagious, Snydman's map revealed something very unusual. There was clearly a summer-fall distribution of dates of onset of the cases, and there clearly were pretty high rates of arthritis on certain streets or roads. It's what I basically when I called called Alan Steer. I mean, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. If you had one child affected with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis within the population of children of Lyme, Connecticut, that would be maybe what you would expect. Not 39. There are two doctors whose work is most commonly associated with Lyme disease today, and this man, Dr. Alan Steer, is one of them. So, so. When he came to that first meeting, sort of what was that like? Now I know that this was a while back. (laughs) Yeah. It's 43 years ago. I met with Dr. Steer in his office in Boston. His white hair runs from above his ears and around his head like a partial halo. He's measured in his speech, guarded even, but his eyebrows are strangely expressive. The combined effect is that no matter the topic, he looks gentle, but sounds deadly serious. So I'm just going to get a sense of your levels. Why don't you tell me what you had for breakfast? I had cereal for breakfast. Can you elaborate? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was fruit, strawberries and raspberries and blueberries and cereal um, and milk. Today, Dr. Steer is a researcher and professor of rheumatology at Harvard. But back in 75, he had just finished up two years with the disease detectives, the Epidemic Intelligence Service, and was starting a fellowship in rheumatology at Yale. And because of his training, he knew that he had to begin by focusing on something objective, symptoms that could be measured or tested or observed with the naked eye. 
it is important that the people that you're seeing you think have the same disease. This is called a case definition, and it's like the investigation's guardrails. A case definition outlines and focuses an epidemiological investigation. It says what's inbounds and what's out. We decided to uh, make it that we would see children who had arthritis. And why would you choose children with arthritis? Because that's unusual. Now, some of the stories in Lyme were coming from adults. Remember, Polly and her husband Gil were also dealing with strange symptoms. So why not include them too? Because adults get arthritis for all sorts of reasons. It's common and therefore harder to know, know for sure, that what they have is something new, something undocumented. To study a novel disease, you have to start with the narrowest definition possible and work your way outwards. And in a study like this one, the people who don't fit inside that narrow case definition may feel like doctors are ignoring them. And until there's enough evidence to expand the inquiry, that's exactly what's happening. Because this isn't really a doctor's visit in the traditional sense. It's an epidemiological process. It's also an example of how this type of investigation can feel anti-patient. The next thing you need to do is decide what your universe is. Um, and we decided on three contiguous communities, Lyme, Old Lyme, and East Haddam, Connecticut. We wanted to find as many children as we could in those communities who had arthritis. In order to find kids with JRA, Steer deputized Lyme locals. He spoke with the school nurse and local doctors, and he met with at least one of the two mothers that had initially called David Snydman, Polly Murray. Polly's son, Todd, who had been with her the last time she was belittled by a doctor, remembers how differently she was treated by Dr. Steer. He didn't have the answers, but he was clearly somebody who was caring and willing to listen and, you know, trying to, trying to get at the truth. He really was the first person who, who listened and began to really consider that this was something new going on. And of course, Polly had come prepared. She had been documenting her family's health for years. But over the past few months, she had become a veritable amateur epidemiologist, interviewing neighbors and parents, conducting her own miniature investigation. Here's Polly's daughter, Wendy. She wrote up like, I don't know, 33 names and symptoms and contact information and brought it to her first meeting with Dr. Steer. She had him in her safety deposit box. You know, she that's how important they were to her, that she put him in there. I had read about this stack of contacts that Polly had handed Steer. It's the sort of thing that news outlets have written about over the years. Citizen sleuth slash local mom assists in investigation. The details would shift a bit. Sometimes it was 30 names she gave him. Sometimes it was 40. But either way, I always thought this must have been a huge alley-oop for Dr. Steer. Which is why I was a little surprised when he politely acknowledged Polly's help and then moved on. Polly Murray was a source of information and an important source of information. But there were other people as well. Wendy told me she still had the initial stack of contacts that her mother had given Dr. Steer. So I asked her to send me copies. And now, having seen them, I think I understand why he might have deflected that question. Laubach, Gerald, Blood Street, Lyme. Stephen, 19. Six or seven years ago, joint problems. Saw a doctor in New London. Hospitalized. 
contraction. Polly had handed him more than two dozen pages, filled with little bursts of shorthand and notes scribbled in the margins. Four joint problems, multiple involvement. Hospitalized Yale, New Haven. David. In some cases, the handwriting's a little hard to read, and it's not always clear what qualifies as a contact. Barry, McIntosh Road, Lyme. But the biggest problem, from an epidemiology perspective, were the illnesses themselves. Remember, Steer had a case definition, a narrow universe in which he had to work. Primarily, he was studying children and teenagers with arthritis. But many of the contacts that Polly provided were way outside of that universe. Mrs. Ronald Sternicki, age 30 to 40. Trouble started while skiing in Colorado. Very sick with upper respiratory problems. Later in June, had pain and stiffness in her neck. Felt faint. Regardless of whether or not they were sick or suffering, many of the contacts she provided would not qualify for Steer's study. In fact, Polly herself did not qualify. Two of her boys did, but her own symptoms were stranger, harder to pin down. The very last page of the documents she gave to Dr. Steer is her own detailed medical history, written neatly in half-cursive script, a litany of symptoms, like a side effect warning from modern-day drug commercials. Polly, age 42. History of allergies, sore throats, hoarse voice, nausea, diarrhea, fever, purpura, joint pains, facial and eye swelling, asthma, sudden weight loss, rashes on face, hands, arms, behind ears, cold and numb fingers, canker sores, chronic cervicitis, and They were tackling the same problem, but looking at it from completely different perspectives. Steer was a scientist trying to connect the dots of a single illness to outline an isolated constellation of points. Polly, by comparison, was providing a map of the entire night sky. New Haven, December 1975. About a month after meeting with Polly Murray, Dr. Steer's investigation had been approved by an internal review board and begun in earnest. It was called Protocol 1125, Evaluation of Epidemic Arthritis in the Lyme, Connecticut area. And here, another basic lesson about epidemiology and one that I found really surprising. There are just three basic ways that agents and hosts come together. Just three. First, agents or pathogens, whatever it is, they can be passed from person to person. If an organism is being transmitted by person to person, you can usually trace one contact with another. Or they might be passed through some sort of collective environmental exposure, say contaminated food or air or water. A common source. Or they can be spread by a third party, an insect or arthropod, what we call a vector. We were not able to trace contacts. We were not able to identify a common source. When people had been infected in the same family, it was usually in a different year. First impression actually was that this might be a virus or a vector-borne disease, perhaps transmitted by mosquitoes. And from the case histories they collected, they had one detail that stood out too, a symptom that might just be traceable. It was in a quarter of the children, not a lot. There was a history of an unusual skin lesion. A bullseye rash. Spring, 1976, nine months into the investigation. When the weather was warming up and kids were playing out in the woods again, Steer and Snydman started looking for people with bullseye rashes. 
If they could confirm that the rashes were connected and not a coincidence, then they'd have something to study, something narrow, something they could see. We were able to come up with 12 people, not a lot. Uh, and 75% of the group that we entered into the study developed arthritis. In May, Steer wrote to all the study participants about his, as of yet, unpublished findings. There were 39 kids and 12 adults who met their criteria, who fit inside the universe that he and Snydman had created. Most of them were suffering from bouts of arthritis, especially in the knees, but also in other joints, preceded by a flu-like illness sometime before. And there were other strange symptoms reported too. Nerve pain, facial paralysis, trouble sleeping. But these were less consistent, not as easily defined, and by their design, not the current focus of the investigation. Steer was a rheumatologist, so he focused on the one thing he knew best. And he called the unknown disease Lyme arthritis. June 1976, the Murray House on Joshua Town Road, one year in. It took over. Like, I remember, you know, looking down and seeing all the NBC, you know, TV producers and stuff out on the lawn, and Dr. Steer was there, and they were filming, and looking down from my bedroom window, and they were having my mom, just for the B-roll, you know, like, cut flowers. And there was one flower that was just, it couldn't, maybe she was trying to break it without scissors, and it just wouldn't break, you know, and she was, like, tugging at this flower for, for the camera. And I was just kind of like this sort of half-admiring, half-grumpy, cynical daughter looking down and thinking, oh, my God. Lyme resident Polly Murray, the first to bring the pattern of symptoms to the attention of medical researchers, insisting that she had some sort of disease. I felt that there was some something there, but the medical profession said, well, there is no such disease that, that exists that has the number of symptoms that you are exhibiting. People in the town of Old Lyme were not pleased. A novel form of infectious arthritis had just been named after their quaint New England town. Real estate agents were up in arms, and people were freaked out for their kids. Someone called a meeting at Town Hall, where Dr. Steer presented his findings and answered questions from the public. A risky proposition, given Steer had so few answers to give. There's a lot I don't know about this scene. If it was hushed or noisy, if it was hot and stuffy, or if there was a rattly air conditioner working overtime in the corner. What I do know is that there were about 100 people there, and that the public witnessed something that often takes place behind closed doors. Complete and utter scientific disagreement. I mean, it's both exciting and it's also frustrating. Um, trying to sift out what may be correct, what may not be correct. I mean, for example, uh, nuclear power plants had been built in Connecticut in the 1960s. And there were people who thought that was surely the reason this was happening. Dr. Steer told the crowd that he believed Lyme arthritis was caused by a virus that it was probably self-limited, meaning it would get better on its own, like a flu. He was advising patients to treat pain and swelling with aspirin until they felt better. But there was a pair of Navy researchers there, too, that were floating another theory, that Lyme arthritis was caused by a bacteria, that in order to treat it, patients should be given antibiotics. This disagreement would have not only rattled the public, it would have also been confounding for local physicians, who would largely be the ones treating people. 
they would have to choose between two theories of treatment, antibiotics or aspirin, without sufficient evidence to choose one over another. I mean, one's trying to balance um, what you think is happening and that people need to know. And um, one's balancing that with not giving out false or, tr or trying the best you can not to give out false information. I hope I'm not giving away anything here when I tell you Dr. Steer's theory was wrong. Often, Lyme disease does not go away on its own, and it is not treated with aspirin. Steer was making an educated guess, and it didn't pan out. But that's science. You publish it, you put it out there, and people react. Uh, some of it holds up, and some of it does not. Uh, and in the process, that is how progress is made. That variety of progress, the one where mistakes are made and corrected, is hard to handle when you're sick and suffering. Today, Dr. Steer is credited with naming and investigating Lyme disease. But the other two doctors at that town hall meeting, the ones who correctly guessed that Lyme is a bacteria and who studied it for many years afterwards, are largely left out of the narrative. Why might that be? Well, a cynic might point out that Dr. Steer and his team were from a little institution named Yale. And the other two were just a couple of Navy docs working at some submarine base. Of course, the elitism of the medical world, it cuts both ways. Sometime after the meeting, Steer and Snydman tried to publish their first study on Lyme arthritis. It was rejected by the New England Journal because it, it was felt that there was too much pre-publicity. As it turns out, they had broken a cardinal rule of research in the 1970s. Don't give away the scoop. Medical journals, like the New England Journal of Medicine, want their research to make the news, even if it's in the public's interest to know the information beforehand. It had been on the front page of the New York Times, and they weren't interested. <laughs> it, was it was ridiculous. In a way, they were being punished for saying too much too soon, even though they were wrong. Some of these internal battles are part of the scientific process, and some are part of the scientific bureaucracy. But for those of us on the outside, it's hard to tell which is which. And the end result is mistrust. Patients don't care who gets credit. They just want to feel better. Hey, what, what makes you do this? What makes you get past the guy, get to the quarterback? What makes you get 21 sacks in 12 games? I let him know, hey, it's Jesus. Reggie White was an ordained evangelical minister and one of the greatest defensive ends in NFL history. But early one morning in 2004, the day after Christmas, he was rushed to the hospital and pronounced dead at just 43. He had died from a combination of cardiac arrhythmia and sleep apnea, complications from a disease called sarcoidosis. It's been sort of classified as the most common rare disease because it is a rare disease, but um, it seems like uh, it's much more common than we think. This is Dr. Yvette Cozier, 
an epidemiologist and investigator in the Black Women's Health Study. And I promise this little diversion is very, very relevant to our story about Lyme disease. The, the puzzle is that for a large segment of those who have it, they are completely unaware. And so it's basically like a mini, it's like a, a mini tumor that comes and goes? Okay, so it's not a cancer, but it's all immune cells, cells that are rushing to a point where they are coming with the intention of fighting something into sort of walling it off. Um, but you cannot um, identify what it rushed to that site to fight. Despite the fancy-sounding name, doctors don't really know what causes sarcoidosis. An infectious agent or some kind of immune problem, they're still not sure. But either way, the disease is characterized by the formation of granulomas, little balls of immune cells that bunch up like tumors and wherever they go, cause inflammation. In the joints, it's arthritis. They can attack the eyes and cause blindness or the heart, which in rare cases can be fatal, like it was for Reggie White. But despite all the places it can go, sarcoidosis is most commonly known as a pulmonary disease, a disease of the lungs. Because symptomatically, it can look a lot like lung cancer. Pulmonologists have led the way in identifying and studying sarcoidosis. Because once upon a time, it was normal to screen job applicants for tuberculosis through a mandated chest x-ray. So routine <laughs> chest x-rays used to be a thing yeah. in jobs? They used to be a thing in jobs, particularly federal jobs. And uh, certainly um, in the military, they probably still are. And I believe... Here's another thing you need to know. In the United States, African-American women have the highest rates of sarcoidosis. But in uh, Northern Europe, it uh, seems to be white men who um, have the highest rates of uh, disease. Got all that? Okay. Not long ago, Dr. Cozier went to a conference on sarcoidosis. And at that conference, among all the patients there, she met a white man. He was the only male that was there and had for many, many years suffered with uh, joint problems. The pain in his knees was so bad, he wound up having them replaced. Not once, three times. And then he started to have issues with his vision. The ophthalmologist um, actually had a biopsy done and noted that he had sarcoidosis. This, you might imagine, was a revelatory diagnosis. The next time his knees began to flare up, they uh, did biopsy and recognized that um, it had been sarcoidosis all along. So why did it take so long to figure out? Why did this guy have to get his knees replaced three separate times before they got it right? You know, it seemed like it was an orthopedic problem, so why would anyone look any further? But also, he didn't really necessarily fit the, uh, the description. In other words, he wasn't a black woman with sarcoidosis of the lungs. He was a white guy with sarcoidosis of the knees. Science is compartmentalized by necessity. Frankly, there's too much to learn in the world, so experts have to focus that knowledge in order to make progress. But disease leaps from one discipline to another, with no regard for the silos of medical education and practice. Dr. Snydman initially contacted Alan Steer because he was a rheumatologist, an expert in arthritis. But as the scope of the Lyme investigation broadened, the usefulness of his expertise narrowed. First, there was the vector. Yale scientists were at this time collecting tens of thousands of mosquitoes and thousands of ticks as well. 
searching for the pathogen that might be causing Lyme arthritis. <laughs> I'm not an entomologist. I knew nothing about ticks. And it started as an investigation of children with arthritis. And then there was the skin rash, typically the domain of dermatologists. It was, in general, a slowly expanding skin lesion that would last for several weeks and then go away. Uh, there was a Danish dermatology resident um, who, when we presented this at a conference, said, this rather sounds like erythema migrans. Erythema migrans, Latin for migrating redness. This is the part of the story where I tell you that even in 1975, Lyme disease was not new. Long before it was ravaging the knees of Connecticut school children, it was documented in the clinics of Europe. Germany, 1883. Physician Alfred Buchwald discovers a patient with a chronic skin rash he calls ACA. Just as there are silos between scientific and medical disciplines, there are silos that exist between places, between languages. Sweden, 1909. Swedish dermatologist Arvid Avzelius presents a new skin rash he calls... When Steer started his investigation, he had no idea that Lyme arthritis, or whatever it was, was global. Germany, 1915. Sven Hellerstrom publishes a paper connecting erythema migrans patients to cases of meningitis. Again, for those of us putting the puzzle together 40 years later, it might seem like a huge oversight. But why would Steer have known? He was a rheumatologist. Wisconsin, 1970. A dermatologist who knows about the European history of erythema migrans successfully treats a 57-year-old patient with a bullseye rash with penicillin. The man had been bitten by a tick. He wasn't familiar with the research in other specialties of medicine. And besides, the Swedish papers were written in Swedish, an early French paper on the subject was written in French, the German papers were written in German. New Haven, 1976. Dr. Steer learns all of this from a Danish dermatology resident who sees the rash and tells him... This, this rather sounds, sounds like erythema migrans. A bullseye rash. Like Legionnaire's disease, this was a puzzle being put together in the dark. And nobody had finished the thing, not even in Europe. They'd only matched up a few wayward pieces here or there. It wasn't clear that it was the same thing. Uh, not associated with arthritis. A number of people who were dealing with this had thought that it responded to antibiotic therapy. Some others did not, by the way. So that wasn't so clear either. Dr. Steer has amassed a long career working with Lyme disease, and he is an expert. But he's an expert in rheumatology who has branched out into other disciplines. And in Lyme world, there is no such thing as a single authority. Lyme is bigger than any one person. Summer, 1979. About three years after that town hall where residents were advised to treat Lyme arthritis with aspirin, the Yale researchers released a statement. It was a reboot of sorts. They were no longer studying Lyme arthritis. They were studying Lyme disease, a multi-system illness that could invade the joints, the heart, the facial nerves, and the lining of the brain. And after years of recommending aspirin, their studies on the efficacy of antibiotics had started to show results. And so they changed course. They started recommending antibiotic treatment for patients with a bullseye rash and unusual bouts of arthritis. But they didn't know for sure which type of antibiotic was best or for how long. 
they had collected enough evidence to widen the case definition and confirm what Polly Murray had believed all along, that the disease was more serious than originally thought. But the reboot was a double-edged sword. Because by expanding the definition of Lyme without a clear diagnostic test in place, without identifying the pathogen that was causing it, they were opening a door that is not easily closed. It is a complex infection, but of course that doesn't mean that everything that can happen to people is manifested in that infection. After the announcement, cases started pouring in. More cases of actual Lyme disease and more cases of what maybe, probably, was something else entirely. I mean, we were saying this was an unusual illness. It had not been seen before. Um, So people who had other unusual illnesses uh, wondered if what they had was this illness that we were calling Lyme disease. My dad had a, he had a very good sense of humor, and at one point he made the remark that my mom uh, thought that Abraham Lincoln had died of Lyme disease. One thing was for certain. Lyme disease wasn't being spread by mosquitoes like Steer had initially speculated. Cases were coming in from a number of states now, roughly matching the geographic range of what we now call the black-legged tick. And that's bad, because ticks are disease bombs. They carry so many pathogens, it's hard to separate them all out. Remember how I said this process is like putting a puzzle together in the dark? If there's a tick involved, it might be more like three or four puzzles, all scrambled together. Dr. Steer had been searching for the agent of Lyme disease longer than just about anybody. But the process is messy. Sometimes it's random. And he wouldn't be the one to find it. 1980, Rocky Mountain Laboratories, Hamilton, Montana. Typically, he would be the the Santa Claus for the the Christmas party. Dr. Alan Barber is a microbiologist. Round glasses, looks a bit like an owl. And in 1980, he was working with a man named Willy Bergdorfer. He was uh, Schweitzer Deutsch, so he he was Swiss. I think that makes for a pretty jolly Santa Claus. I think it's a good, good Santa. Yeah. Yes, and his face, kind of a roundish face, uh, worked very well. When he wasn't playing Santa, Bergdorfer was a medical entomologist, somebody who studies the various insects and arthropods that can spread disease, lice, ticks, mosquitoes, etc. His colleague, Dr. Barber, had just gotten back from a meeting of infectious disease experts, where Alan Steer had been presenting something on Lyme disease. May have been the first time we announced that he could use penicillin to treat it. And this was the first time that there was some evidence there could be a bacteria. And he told me that, funny you should mention that, because I've just been uh, finding somebody in the microscope. Bergdorfer was dissecting a batch of ticks from Long Island. And he had just found something unusual inside two of them. Bacteria floating around inside the ticks, teeny tiny midgut. They were, you know, prepared for examination under the microscope, and under those conditions, he could see something that looked like a spirochete. A spirochete is a phylum of bacteria, a thin noodle of a pathogen that twists like a corkscrew or snake. The most famous spirochete is probably the one that causes syphilis. But this was something else, something neither he or Dr. Barber recognized. So he provided me with some of the intestines of these ticks. 
where he had seen the spiral cages. He gave me a little vial of them. Growing pathogens is a vital part of research and diagnostics. And for easy-to-grow pathogens, like E. coli, for example, all you've got to do is put a sample in a dish, give it some food, and bloop, 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 The pathogen multiplies exponentially. So for, like, people with a urinary tract infection, they actually grow it in the laboratory and they know what it is. But spirochetes are finicky. They don't grow as quickly or as reliably as some other bacteria. Bloop, bloop. Oop. Initial results, I, I could see the spirochetes growing, but there were some other bacteria in there from a contamination. And, but eventually we were able to get a, a pure, what's called a pure culture. It's all by itself, just the one bacteria. The time that I saw that we had a pure culture was one of the most memorable days of my life. You know, you don't forget something like that. It was a hitherto undiscovered pathogen, the causative agent of Lyme disease. And it was named after Willy Bergdorfer, the man who identified it. Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia burgdorferi. I said many times that the study of medicine is humbling. Um, it was eight years from initial observations to the first identification of the infectious agent. It means that um, a lot of what one does, trying to find it, didn't work out. Well, that's what science is like. That's what research is like. The truth about science and epidemiology, I think, is a little unsettling, that it's slow that there's guesswork, false starts, red herrings. But this is the process. It takes people like Polly Murray. She literally had doctors saying, oh, just go play tennis. To push through the status quo, to challenge the system, and yes, the sexism of medicine and epidemiology. And it takes people like Alan Steer to do the slow work of categorizing what we know and what we don't. It is important that the people that you're seeing have the same disease. But obviously, I wouldn't be telling this story if it were that simple. Because the uncertainty that plagued those early years has not gone away. Instead, it grew and grew until it was big enough to have its own name, its own case definition, its own alternate universe. This is chronic Lyme disease. It sounds like the same thing, but it's not. From a literal point of view, Lyme can be a chronic disease. Left unchecked, it can last for months or years. And once treated, not everybody feels better right away. Some will have lasting symptoms that can take a long time to resolve. But ultimately, it is treatable with a relatively short dose of antibiotics. Chronic Lyme disease is the term used by a community of doctors and patients that believe Lyme is much harder to treat than authorities say it is. A number even believe that Lyme disease is nearly or entirely incurable, that practically anything can be a symptom and that the tests cannot be trusted. It is the perfect storm, but I am troubled. I am troubled as to why Lyme. What was it about Lyme that sparked this? Because I've never seen this in any other disease, not even in HIV, with all its social stigma, right? This is Jorge Benach. 
Benatch is a lifelong Lyme researcher currently working at Stony Brook University in New York. He's the one that sent Willie Bergdorfer the batch of ticks that he used to identify the bacteria. Dr. Benatch says in the early days, people like Polly weren't taken seriously. You know, they were, very often they were brushed aside, and nobody likes to be brushed aside. This is complicated stuff, and we'll talk about it more later. For now, the important thing to know is that the CDC and major medical organizations do not recognize the term chronic Lyme disease, in part because that diagnosis has led some doctors to put patients on powerful antibiotics for months or even years, treatments that have little to no benefit but hefty costs and can even be harmful. I heard a colleague said that the gene is out of the bag and we're never going to put them back. And I, I think this is why it's it's so sad in a way, because it, it soured the field and it's made it almost a laughing matter in the larger medical community. You know, when people say Lyme disease and they sort of smirk at each other. I, I've seen it with my own eyes. So what we have is a divided medical world, two opposing camps, one made of old school doctors like Steer and Barber and Benatch, and another one made up of what people call Lyme literate medical doctors, as well as naturopaths and chronic Lyme advocates. This split is the reason why it's so confusing for patients who get a diagnosis of Lyme. I felt, I don't know if unsafe is the word. This is what my colleague Hannah, whose diagnosis we talked about in episode one, was witnessing when her doctor insinuated it was bad to be a quote unquote Lyme doctor. I'd never seen a doctor imply mistrust in another doctor before. It's, it's not a question of, are they suffering? I, I know that. Uh, and I, too, want to help. But how do we help? And um, we do not always know. We have, well, just our knowledge isn't there. April 2019. I went to Lyme, Connecticut this spring and used Dr. David Snydman's old 1975 epidemiological map to knock on doors and try and find some of the first cases of Lyme disease. Is Mary Beth live here? Um, she is. Um, I met a couple people that remembered the investigation, but mostly people had moved away. Can you just tell me what, you, what you, you've heard of her story and sort of how. Some of Polly's old neighbors remembered her fondly, but. Never really knew her well. Some woman, Polly Murray, was it, that had uh, neurological disorders or, or thought she did or something? While I was working on this series, Polly was living in a memory care facility. I would have loved to interview her, but she had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's years before, and it was her kids who wound up telling me her story. This July, while I was in the process of revising this episode, Polly's daughter, Wendy, called me to let me know she had passed away. Polly was 85. In the years after the bacteria was identified, Polly was invited to scientific conferences to speak about her experiences. She collected piles and piles of medical journals and scientific papers about the disease. And in 1990, 15 years after the investigation had started, Dr. Alan Steer returned to Lyme, Connecticut for a talk. Polly was there, of course, sitting in the audience with a handheld recorder. You will probably remember that there were two mothers in Lyme, Connecticut, who called this to the attention of the state health department, to the CDC, and it got to me. And one of the mothers is Polly Murray, who's here tonight. In fact, Polly, would you please stand up? (laughs) 
But Polly's legacy is fading with time, becoming more of a footnote than a plot point. And it makes me wonder if 100 years from now, people will still remember her at all. If they'll remember that before you can put out a fire, first you need someone to raise the alarm. Her dad was always very worried. Like when he was near his his death, he, he Polly was down in D.C. testifying. And I guess her father said something like, I'm so worried about Polly because the whistleblower always gets hurt. And Polly, you know, like it is tough to be the whistleblower. It takes incredible strength. So, you know, I'm I'm in awe of her because I think she could have been crushed, you know, and she wasn't. In 1975, 51 people in Connecticut were diagnosed with what would later be called Lyme disease. Today, it's the most common vector-borne disease in the United States. On the next episode, we're going to take you from tick bite to bullseye and dive into the science behind Lyme disease. Ticks, in that first 24 hours, they are not usually actively feeding. They're doing things like injecting you with antihistamines. That's next time on Patient Zero. Patient Zero is produced and reported by me, Taylor Quimby. Projects like this one take time and resources. If you like what you hear, consider making a $20 donation at patientzeropodcast.org. You'll get early access to future episodes, ad-free, and some bonus episodes as well. Editing help for this episode came from Annie Ropeek, Jason Moon, Corey Princell, Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, Nick Capodice, Jackie Helbert, and Todd Bookman. Sam Evans-Brown is Patient Zero's senior producer. Erica Janik is executive producer. Fact-checking for this episode by Amy Tardiff. Graphics by Sarah Plord. Maureen McMurray is director of content. Special thanks to Ali Saratani, Ben Borgman-Winter, and Stephanie D. for letting me tag along on an amazing day out counting ticks. Also thanks to Samantha Searles and Casey McDermott for contributing their voices to this episode. If you've got questions, concerns, or comments about Patient Zero, we want to hear from you. Email us at patientzero at nhpr.org. Patient Zero's theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Additional music from Jason Moon, Blue Dot Sessions, and Disasterpiece. Credit music by Deerhoof. Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.